Well, this was a passage that uh, when I first was reading it and preparing, I thought, what in the world am I going to say about that? By the time we got done, I'm like, how in the world am I going to get that into one Sunday? Before we uh, get into this morning's uh, text and numbers, I'd like to draw your attention to 1 Thessalonians. So we go from the early New, early Old Testament to the middle of the New Testament, past the Gospels and past Acts and Romans and past uh, Paul's letters to uh, the Galatian church and the Ephesian church and the Philippian church and Colossian church. And then you find 1 Thessalonians. You might find it easier to go all the way to the back and start moving back to the left. When you find 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be looking at chapter 4. I'm going to read the first eight verses. Hopefully this will sort of lay a foundation uh, for us in our understanding of what we'll see in Numbers 5. Here's what Paul writes. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Okay, so with the taste of that lingering in our mouths, let's turn back to Numbers chapter 5, where we see a passage also about holy living with some things that might seem unusual to us and a very weird ritual that we see in there as well. Hopefully you've all read this as part of your homework and you're prepared. Starting with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I will dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did this just as the Lord had instructed Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and is so unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth to the value, uh, uh, add a fifth of the value to it, And give it all to the person they have wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, 
the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest, along with the ram with which atonement is made for the wrongdoer. All the sacred contributions the Israelites bring to a priest will belong to him. Sacred things belong to their owners, but what they give to the priest will belong to the priest. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, so that another man has sexual relations with her, and this is hidden from her husband, and her iniquity is undetected, since there's no witness against her and she's not been caught in the act, and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband, and he suspects his wife, and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her even though she is not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest. He must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour olive oil on it or put incense on it, because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has had sexual relations with you and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people when He makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells or your womb miscarries. Then the woman is to say, Amen, so be it. The priest is to write these curses on a scroll and then wash them off into the bitter water. He shall make the woman drink the bitter water that, ca- that brings a curse, and this water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering will enter her. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he is to have the woman drink the water. If she has made herself impure and been unfaithful to her husband, this will be the result. When she is made to drink the water that brings a curse and causes bitter suffering, it will enter her, her abdomen will swell, and her womb will miscarry, and she will become a curse. If, however, the woman has not made herself impure but is clean, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. This, then, is the law of jealousy. When a woman goes astray and makes her husband impure while married to her husband, and makes herself impure while married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife, the priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to apply this entire law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences 
of her sin. This is God's word. Let us thank him for it. Father, as we enter into the study of your word today, there are things that are difficult for us to comprehend being so far removed from the day it was written. There are things that are hard for us to, uh, to not just to comprehend, but to uh, embrace with our hearts being so far removed from a culture that understands holiness. Father, there are things here that are hard for us to receive and to submit to because our hearts are so far removed from your holiness. As we study your word together today, Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through it. We ask that you would guide us in our understanding, that your Holy Spirit would make clear what it is that you have for us, that you would protect us from any human opinion, including my own. And that you would transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit through the renewing of our minds with your word. That we might be fully yours, holy, set apart, your special possession. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. I did tell you that there was a weird ritual in here, right? As I mentioned earlier, there, there's so much that I really want to bring out of this, and we will not have time to develop that today. Hopefully, we'll get a good picture of what God's trying to say to us. Because what we need from this is to set aside the things that we already have in our heads that have been put there by our, our framework, our, our upbringing, our culture, our own personal opinions. We need to set that aside to hear from God what the book says and what He is trying to communicate to us. Now, as we were working through this uh, book of Numbers, we saw in chapters 1 and 2 that God requires His people to order every aspect of their lives around Him. He said He would be their God, He would dwell in their midst, and He gives them that, that physical illustration of being encamped around the tabernacle that represented His presence. Interestingly, before this, when they get to Mount Sinai, they have to go outside the camp to the tent of meeting, but now it's moved to the inside as God dwells among His people by the covenant that He makes with them. In chapters 3 and 4, we saw that this idea naturally and necessarily extend, extends to our uh, worship and service to God as those who belong to the Lord must worship and serve Him on His terms. And we saw His sovereignty in choosing whom He will to serve Him. We saw His grace in allowing us to worship Him and approach Him at all. And we saw His holiness that only those who are authorized may come into His presence. Now today, chapter 5 shows us the logical continuation of these principles. 
Because if the Lord indeed dwells in the midst of His people, and they acknowledge Him as the center of everything, worshiping and serving Him on His terms, then holy living as a people set apart for Him must be the result. All of which brings us to our core reality. The presence of God requires the absence of sin. Can we say that again? The presence of God requires the absence of sin. In other words, the Holy One who, who lives in the midst of His people requires the removal of all that defiles. That's the, the whole big idea we're going to see here in this passage is that there are these three categories that He lays out for us. And in these three categories, we have a picture of things that defile the camp. And they must be dealt with. Sin must be dealt with outside the camp and removed from God's people. In this chapter, the Lord through Moses presents, or rather reminds His people, of some basic principles for a holy people among whom the holy God dwells. First, sin must be put outside the camp. Uncleanness must be put outside the camp. Second, justice must be served but all sin is against God. Third, marriage as an illustration of God's relationship to His people must be kept pure and holy. Additionally, within that, God shows us that the Lord knows our guilt or innocence when no one else does. And He can't ever be fooled. All right, you ready to jump into this? Let's get into it. First, we see this category of personal defilement. Personal defilement. And he gives us this picture in the first section about infectious impurity. He shows us personal defilement through infectious impurity. We see here as a picture of sin, leprosy, discharge, there's any number of Bodily discharges that should not be happening, that are happening, are considered unclean. You can put the parts together for yourself. This includes the defilement of touching a dead body. Now, one of the things that we recognize in the book of Leviticus is that God has these rules for His people, the law, that are practically beneficial, but that's not the point. The practical benefits are an illustration of the true point, which is a spiritual reality, that the people of God must be set apart for God by holy living. We should be able to pick up on the reality that if God designed the world to work a certain way, somebody say amen, that the world works best when we do it His way. We so often forget that. And just like we have since the beginning in the garden, we continue to rebel against God's created order. We try to call natural things which God calls unnatural. We try to call good and virtuous what God calls evil. And we're living in a day when that which God calls good, we call wicked, detestable. I've heard multiple stories just this week from the news talking about the harm and evil of Christian values. 
we must be able to see beyond the current cultural moment to recognize that the God who created everything sets the agenda on how it operates. He designed life to work a certain way. When we do things our way as if we have the right, everything falls apart. And it always has. That's not new. It doesn't have anything to do with your personal political agenda. Throw that garbage out. Let's stop letting ourselves conflate Christianity and politics. It doesn't matter what party you're from. That's silliness. All of it passes when you leave the planet. What matters is, are you living as his or not? Our call is not to change a culture, but to be a people set apart. In so doing, we'll find the culture around us influenced. But make no mistake, the devil still is the prince of this world. Back to uh, what we're supposed to be talking about here. Personal defilement, infectious impurity. Notice this, that which defiles must be removed from the camp. That which defiles must be removed from the camp. This is a picture, a physical picture, just as the tabernacle in the midst of the camp is the, the physical picture of God dwelling in their midst. When we see these physical diseases, there are a few things we need to know. First, they occur because sin exists. It doesn't mean that the individual who has the leprosy or has the discharge, that doesn't mean that they have personally sinned. It means that because sin exists, disease and death exists. And all of us face that. But that still remains a picture of defiling sin. In a practical sense, as God's laws do for Israel, He protects them from the epidemic that takes place in so many other ancient cultures when leprosy or some other infectious disease breaks out. And they don't understand germ theory as we do today. They didn't have the same science and technology that we have today. But God knew. And as those diseases broke out among those who did not recognize God as God, they had to deal with the consequences. People wiped out. The people of God who obeyed God by putting these things outside the camp, removing the uncleanness from their midst, on a practical level, prevented the spread of the disease. How many of you recognize it's not really about the spread of the disease? That's part of it. That's the benefit. It's about the spread of uncleanness spiritually. A people among whom God dwells cannot have uncleanness, sin, dwelling among them. And that's the picture that this gives us. That which defiles must be removed from the camp. Sin must be put outside the camp. Second, notice this. That which defiles the person defiles the camp. That which defiles the person defiles the camp. Now we should understand this better today than we did two years ago, right? Diseases spread. It can turn into a pandemic. Viruses are transmitted. Bacteria carries over. 
And so we need to make sure that we understand that the physical picture we get here of this defilement is not just that this person is somehow bad or less or any of those things because of this uncleanness, but that this uncleanness, if it is not removed, if it is not dealt with, influences, impacts, spreads throughout the community. In the same way, sin among God's people is not just your own personal private thing. It affects everybody. Sin spreads. It's contagious. And it removes God's hand of protection because the holy God will not dwell among uncleanness. Sin must be removed from the camp because that which defiles the person defiles the camp. But notice a really important third thing here. Not all uncleanness is a matter of choice. Not all uncleanness is a matter of choice. People didn't go out and seek leprosy, right? Many of the people who are contracting these diseases, they didn't necessarily do anything. Now, the discharges that are referred to here uh, are primarily, not exclusively, but primarily focused on uh, discharges related to, to uh, venereal disease. I'll just put it that way. And so very often there was an active pursuit of sin that led to it, but not always. Pink eye qualifies as a discharge that is unclean. But it's one of those things that may or may not have anything to do with your choices or your behavior. In the same way, you and I are defiled regularly by the world that we live in, by the family we grow up in, by the billboards around us, by the internet that is constantly pursuing us like a predator. Before you ever even make a choice for good or bad, the filth around us is clinging to you. Even when you are clean, if you go to the landfill today, after taking a very thorough shower and spend your day walking around the landfill, when you get done, you will stink. No way around it. In the same way, much of the uncleanness that clings to us is not a matter of our willful sin, but a matter of the fact that we are, fall, we are living in a fallen world. We're surrounded by it like a fish in the ocean. And we don't even realize we're wet. Personal defilement involving this infectious impurity in this first portion is a picture of sin needing to be removed, dealt with outside the camp. Whether it's a matter of choice or not, it defiles the camp. Second, we're dealing with the second category of relational defilement. Relational defilement. This has to do with unjust dealings. Unjust dealings. I'm, this particular chapter, I, I will confess, while I'm reading from uh, our, our standard pulpit Bible here with the, uh, the new NIV, I don't think they did a great job in some of the renderings here. Uh, so if you have an ESV or a New American Standard or Heaven's Preferred Translation, the older edition of the NIV, then 
you'll recognize that some of the wording is different and it, it can impact the nuance of our understanding. In some cases, it's better here, but most of the time, don't love it. As we look at, at this picture uh, in uh, verses 5 to 11, or 5 to 10, I should say, this is a picture of unrighteousness, relational defilement through unjust dealings. Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and, and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sins they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, adding a fifth of the value to it and giving all of it to the person they have wronged. And then it goes on to say that if that implicitly if that person and explicitly if that person has no close relative to whom you can make restitution, give it to the priest. Because all of it belongs to the Lord. Here's the point. Some of your translations will say, all the sins which men commit. It's talking about all sins, but the focus here is on relational sins. When you wrong someone else, your sin is not primarily against the person you have wronged. And that's especially true, specifically true, of those who belong to Christ. Yes, you've sinned against them. But first and foremost, that sin is against God. That's our first point. All our sins are first and foremost against God. This is why the restitution is to be paid to the person who was wronged. But if you can't do that, you pay it to the priest. Because the restitution ultimately belongs to the Lord. And He's commanding you to give it to the person you have wronged, but you must, if they're not there, oh, sorry, I can't pay it back. That's not the point. You must make restitution to the Lord and give it to the priest. That's that's what He's trying to tell Israel. Here's how this works. When you sin, you sin against Me because I am holy and you are Mine. Therefore, every time you wrong someone, little shady dealings, maybe fudging the truth, you know, kind of altering your time card, whatever it is, when you wrong someone in this way, when you defraud them, when you are, as we read in 1 Thessalonians, bloodthirsty or deceitful, any of these things that you do, you're doing against God because you're defiling His name. We are defiled when our dealings in a relationship to other people are unjust. The oppressor answers to God. All our sins are are first and foremost against God. Psalm 51, in fact, why don't we turn there, keep your finger in Numbers 5, we'll be back, but in the center of your Bible we see the book of Psalms. If you find Psalm 51, it's going to be familiar to many of you. To some others, it might be something you're not familiar with. When you find Psalm 51, you will find, as with so many of the Psalms, a little snippet at the beginning explaining the context of the Psalm. This particular one says, For the director of music, a Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Wow, we get a worship song 
for the congregation out of David's sin. That's the context. David is writing this psalm of confession, a song and prayer to God, after having been caught in sin. He committed adultery. The adultery led to murder as a cover-up. And listen to what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He's he's weighed down by it. It's always on his mind. He can't get away from the fact that he's sinned against God. This is a terrible thing that he's done. And it's always in front of his mind. But notice what he says next in verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now wait a minute. How in the world can you be saying that you've sinned against God only when you clearly sinned against Bathsheba? Many scholars, and I I think there's some validity to this, would count this not just as some uh, voluntary affair, but as a sexual assault slash rape as the king takes this woman to be his and she really doesn't have a choice about it. I don't know whether that's true, but I think there's some, some reason that, to uh, make that case. In any case, how can you possibly say you only sinned against God? What about Uriah? You took his wife. He was faithful to you. He was so faithful that you couldn't even get him to go sleep with his wife so you could cover it up and you end up having to kill him. But you sinned only against God? Yeah, that's the purpose of what we're seeing in Numbers 5. To understand that before anything else, whatever wrong you have done to the person, it is not primarily wrong from an anthropocentric, man-centered, humanistic point of view. It's not wrong just because it hurts another person. It's wrong first and foremost because it is an offense to God by hurting another person. Back to Numbers 5. All our sins are first and foremost against God. Notice this, justice demands payment for sin. Justice demands payment for sin. Just as the defiling skin diseases had to be removed from the camp, now we see that injustice, unrighteousness, unjust dealings, to not defile the camp. Now, obviously, unjust dealing is not going to spread like a skin disease, but it is going to spread. How we treat people has a ripple effect. And the unholiness of unrighteous behavior in our dealings defiles the community. God says, this can't be a part of my people. Therefore, we must get it right. If you've done something wrong, First, you have to confess it. It's very explicit. It's interesting that in this law, he says you must confess what you've done. And in in Christian circles today, we have this tendency to think that that's good, right? We confess it and God forgives us because God's nice that way. That's not very accurate. If we're going to understand the New Testament picture, we're going to have to understand the Old Testament rightly. 
You confess, you acknowledge your sin, but now you must make payment. You must compensate the person for the wrong you've done for them, plus a penalty of a fifth. He deals with this, all of these things more specifically in the book of Leviticus, the entire book of which is dedicated to this concept of God's people being set apart for him. And so holy living is, is part and parcel of being the people of God. Here he's just reminding them, you've done wrong, you pay back the wrong, plus you pay a penalty, a fine, if you will, of a fifth of that value to the person. And on top of that, whether you make restitution to the person or not, you go to the priest with the offering, the sin offering of a ram to atone for, to pay for the fact that you have sinned against God. And if you can't pay it back to the person or to their family, then you pay it to the priest because it belongs to God. Justice demands payment for sin. Notice the third piece. Payment for sin must be made to God. If our sins are first and foremost against God, and justice demands payment for sin, then payment for sin must be made to God. God says, pay back the person. It's mine, pay them back. That's what you're to do with what you owe me, because we owe Him everything. If they're not there to receive that restitution, then give it to the priest. You don't get to pocket it. You don't get to do with it what you decide. Well, I'm just going to give it to a charity. No, you bring it to the priest, and whatever else happens, atonement must be paid. Because of your sin, the blood of the ram must be shed to pay for your sin. Relational defilement through unjust dealings. The third category we see is marital defilement. Marital defilement. We see that through accusations of infidelity. Now, interestingly, this is the longest portion of the passage. It's not really an accident. We kind of see a progression here. When we're dealing with the, uh, the skin disease and the discharge and the touching of the dead body, this is a, a personal sin, but it's easily observable. Right? You can see it. you got leprosy. Everybody knows it. When you're dealing with the unjust dealings, somebody knows it, probably, because you did them wrong. Maybe they don't. Maybe you got away with it. But God knows. But it's less obvious. Now we're getting to this most personal of things. This accusation of infidelity or adultery. And specifically he points out when nobody else knows. Because you haven't been caught in the act. There's no witnesses. This is what happens among consenting adults here in this picture. This is not a, a woman who has been forced to do something against her will. He deals with that elsewhere in Leviticus. This is a voluntary infidelity or the accusation of such. Nobody else knows. Now what do we do? This is another defilement of the camp and a holy God cannot tolerate it. Notice this, marriage impacts the whole community. Marriage impacts the whole community. We've lost track of what marriage is about in our day and age. We think the government gets to define it. Come on, man. 
we think the church gets to define it. That's not any more true. I don't get to say what marriage is. God designed it. Amen? He's the only one who gets to say how it works, what it is, how it's defined, what its purpose is. Throughout the scriptures, over and over, from Genesis to Revelation, God uses the picture of marriage from the creation of Adam and Eve becoming one flesh to the bride of Christ in the, in, in the final new heaven and new earth. And all throughout, we see this picture of marriage as an illustration of God in relationship to his people. If we get marriage wrong, to the extent that we get it wrong, we are harming society. We are blaspheming against God and telling people this is what God is like. Even if you're not a Christian, this is still the purpose of marriage. For a Christian, we know it. We acknowledge it. We surrender to it. We say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm going to do it your way. And we can be consciously involved in giving the picture of Christ and the church. But for all people, by common grace, God has built this into the way life works. And when we get any crack in it, it's not just between two people. If you've been in a situation where you've gone through a divorce, and I know that's probably at least half of the people hearing me right now, then you know it didn't just affect you and your ex. It affects your kids, it affects your siblings, your parents, your friends, people choosing sides, all these kinds of things. There's a ripple effect. When you get married, contrary to the lies that we've heard, it's not just between two people. That's why we have a wedding ceremony, and it's important. Now, most of you know I'm going to downplay a lot of what we do with weddings because it's just silly for us to spend the kind of money we spend on a party and no time or money or effort on preparing for a lifetime of marriage. And that's the norm. But the marriage ceremony is profoundly important. And it's profoundly important that we do it in the context of the local church as Christ followers. We stand before a group of people and we make vows before God. We're going to talk about vows before God in the next chapter. But as we're talking about weddings and marriage, we're standing before people making vows, making a covenant before God and before the people who are gathered because it's not just about us. We can't get this wrong because every time we get it wrong, everybody touching us is defiled. Marriage impacts the whole community. Now, it's not just this. Notice our second point. God's justice defends the innocent. God's justice defends the innocent. This particular part of the passage, from verses 
uh, 11 to the end has a little more detail, partly because it's more private and we need to, to draw this out, partly because as something without a witness, how do you judge it? How do you know when it's he said, she said? How do you know whether it's true or not? We've been through a period in our society where men get to say whatever they want. And we've been through a period in our society when every woman is to be believed. God says neither of these extremes are true. Truth is true. But not everybody knows what that truth is. God establishes here what anthropologists and sociologists might recognize as a trial by ordeal. Not uncommon in the ancient world and carried on through even uh, beyond medieval times. You may recognize the, the picture, the imagery from things like the witch trials of the, of the 16th and 17th century. There's a difference here in what God does than what virtually all, not all, but virtually all trial by ordeal involved. In all of the other things that we see in the ancient world, and almost all that we saw in the medieval world, Christian influence is what changed it, by the way. Not that it was great, but it was better. Anyhow, what we see in trial by ordeal is that you are put in an impossible situation and it requires a miracle to prove that you are innocent. If some of you are old enough to be picturing Steve Martin and, and uh, Theodoric of York in Saturday Night Live. But if we picture the, the idea of, of, say, the Salem witch trials, you're accused of being a witch. Well, if you're a witch, when we tie you to this chair and, and throw you in the lake, you'll float and not drown. If you drown, then you're innocent. If you are a witch, then we'll burn you because you floated, but it's an impossible situation. There were any number of things like this in ancient cultures where you would have to put your hand in boiling water or boiling oil, and if you were unscathed by that, then you were innocent. It's not what happens here. You go to the priest. You are facing this trial as the priest takes holy water. Now, let's not get images in our mind that this is some special kind of water. It's water that has been consecrated, set apart, dedicated to the Lord for this purpose. It's just water, but it's been set apart to the Lord. And the priest, along with the offering that we saw that the, that the accusing husband brings, again, all of this is assuming that, that there is no witness and the wife denies having participated in this. And the priest takes some dust from the tabernacle floor. It's just normal dust. There's no poison here. And he puts it in the water. And, and in a nutshell, she drinks the water. And there is a curse that is put upon it. She takes an oath and she invites God's participation. And the priest invokes God's participation. And when you drink this water, he'll, he'll write the charge on the, on the scroll and he symbolically washes that off into the water. Most of the inks that they were dealing with are not like ink today. Wouldn't even make you sick. It was food products. When she drinks the water, you know what happens normally with that? Nothing. It tastes weird. That's it. You got some dirty water. It's not 
contaminated water. It's from the holy place there in the tabernacle. Take some dust, put it in the water. And it's a little gross. If she is innocent, the normal process of nothing will take place. The only way for her to be proven guilty in this is one of two things has to happen. She is so bothered by the, the prospect of this that she confesses to sin. Or she maintains her innocence and God must intervene to miraculously cause her to be sick. See how that works? Here in the Old Testament, in Numbers 5, we are seeing a principle that we have all but forgotten, even in our day, in our society, when we claim it all the time, that you are innocent until proven guilty. When God encourages here the trial by ordeal, or I should say commands the trial by, by ordeal, he tells the priest that he must apply the entire law. This entire command must be applied. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to spruce it up a little bit. I think she's guilty, so I'm going to add a little bit of you know, special juice to this so she'll be sick and God can protect her. None of those things. If she's guilty, God alone must do a miraculous thing to show the guilt. Do you see that God is protecting the innocent woman against accusation? God cares about the woman who was wrongly accused. At the same time, he must stand for the purity of and holiness of marriage. He cannot abide the defilement of marriage. But God's justice defends the innocent. This weird ritual is absolutely dependent on God's supernatural intervention to show what no one else can see. And it's rooted in the principle of innocent until proven guilty. Because of that, we should recognize this third point. Marriage impacts the whole community. God's justice defends the innocent. And our sins are never hidden from God. Our sins are never hidden from God. The woman who is guilty will bear the weight of her guilt. The husband's not not held accountable for feeling suspicions. Sometimes that happens. But those feelings of jealousy, the suspicions can't abide either. They have to be dealt with. And this trial by ordeal is different than, say, a trial by combat, which is also prevalent throughout uh, pre-modern history. Trial by combat says we'll fight or we'll have our champions fight, and the winner is declared the innocent party. Well, that's great, but it doesn't settle anything in the mind. It means you get a pass, right? You win. You may or may not actually be guilty or innocent. That wouldn't resolve this in the heart of the husband, would it? But when God inter it supernaturally intervenes to declare guilty the one who is guilty, now you know. And if God does not then the innocent person is defended and the husband can rest assured that God has declared my wife innocent and I need to put this down in my own heart. I need to stop with the accusations. God knows our sins are never hidden from God. He knows our guilt. He knows our innocence. 
We'll see this come up later as Moses brings this up with a couple of the tribes, the idea that you can be sure that your sins will find you out. God knows your heart. God knows the sin that others don't. When you're not accused, but you should be, God knows. When you are accused, but you should not be, God knows. He's not absent. But where God is present, sin must be absent. All right, so let's take a look at what we've just seen in these three, three principles here. God delivered His people from bondage in Egypt with a purpose. That purpose was that they should worship Him. He says that pretty clearly uh, to Moses in Exodus 3.12. The sign that I'm with you will be you'll come out of here and you'll worship me on this mountain. He has Moses say this to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Let my son Israel go so that they might worship me in the wilderness. That was his purpose. That they should be his people. He called them as his own special possession. The fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham that he made back in Genesis 12 and repeated in Genesis 15, that he would make a nation of him. Therefore, God's people must be holy as he is holy, because he set them apart as his own. The entire second half of the book of Exodus, after they, they escape Egypt, from chapter 19 on to the end of the book of Exodus, we see God establishing His law for His people, revealing Himself, His personal name, His character, His heart, and calling His people to be different. In fact, the Ten Commandments is in Exodus 20, but you can't understand rightly Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments unless you understand Exodus 19. That's the foundation for it. And the whole point of Exodus 19 is, I brought you out that you should be mine. And you're set apart. Therefore, you must live as my people set apart. Now, here's the law that will establish what that means. What does that look like? Exodus 19 and 20 is a little bit like we see in Paul's letters, most obviously Ephesians, where it says, this is who you are, and because this is who you are, this is how you are to live. Important for us to recognize. He called them as his own special possession. Therefore, God's people must be holy as he is holy because he set them apart as his own. Now, as they're moving from Sinai toward the promised land, now they must marshal to fight God's enemies. We saw him establish that in chapters 1 and 2 as he took the census of the fighting men. They must marshal to fight God's enemies with all of life centered around the Lord. Then in chapters 3 and 4, we saw that they must do as their holy God determines, carrying out His instructions or incur His wrath. Those God has appointed must fight to defend the holy things against corruption and defend the people against the sin of presumption. Now here in chapter 5, the enemy that they must battle is within. Impurity, injustice, Suspicion of infidelity within the camp. They have to go to war with sin. Recognizing that as God is the center of everything, all sin is breaking faith with Him. And all recompense belongs to Him. Justice belongs to the Lord. He knows and judges our sin. And He defends our innocence. 
He brings justice to the oppressed and judgment to the oppressor. His holiness cannot abide impurity. He judges rightly whether or not we are rightly accused. So the holy God, who is at the center of everything, takes holy living seriously. As we saw Paul write in 1 Thessalonians, we are not called to an impure life, but to a holy life. That which defiles cannot remain where the holy God dwells. Unholiness cannot remain among God's holy people. Therefore, sin must be dealt with. So what's all this mean for you and me? Sin must be removed from the people among whom God dwells in order for the holy God to dwell among them. But therein lies the rub. We were created for intimacy with God. But sin prevents us from that intimacy. It destroys our very reason for being. The reason we exist is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To be in an intimate relationship with Him. But sin separates us from Him. The sin needs to be removed. But sin can't be removed by good deeds or by religious acts. So what are we to do? We need to understand this last category. Provision for defilement. Provision for defilement. God's provision for the defilement that we face is substitutionary atonement. The provision for our defilement is substitutionary atonement. Notice this. In Hebrews 13, we are given a clear picture that Jesus has taken on our sin. And when he was crucified, he was crucified outside the city gate. That's where Calvary is. That's where Golgotha is. It's outside the city of Jerusalem. In the same way, the writer of Hebrews helps us to understand that he has taken our sin outside the camp. He's taken our sin outside the camp. It's been removed from us. Notice also, He has made full payment for our unrighteousness. Romans 3 points out that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God made Christ a sacrifice of atonement for us. He is the sacrifice that sets us right with God. Hebrews chapter 9 points out that He is the complete sacrifice. It's not like the blood of bulls and rams that had to keep being offered over and over again. He made the full payment. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but what He did on the cross for us washed it white as snow. He's taken our sin outside the camp. He's made full payment for our unrighteousness. Notice lastly, He has redeemed us as His bride. He's redeemed us as His bride. Isaiah 62.5, written before Christ came to do this work, tells Israel, as a young man marries a young woman, 
so shall your sons marry you and the bridegroom rejo- and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your god rejoice over you god gives a picture in hosea just recently they released a movie called redeeming love which is supposed to be based on that it doesn't really get the point of the book but it gives a, a picture of a redeeming love in the first 3 chapters of hosea god has called the prophet to marry an unfaithful woman He marries her, gives his love to her, she bears children to him, and then she runs around. As he knew in advance she would do, because that's what God told him. You're going to marry this woman, and she's not going to do well. So not only does she run around on him, she goes so far in her infidelity that she ends up essentially trafficked. Having gone through all of this and watching his bride be unfaithful the prophet representing god in this illustration of life goes to her when she is unrepentant when she is not seeking him and he says you are mine and i'm redeeming you and he buys her back out of her sinful setting Because that's the love God has for His people. Despite the unfaithfulness of His people, God redeems Israel. And Christ redeems us as His bride. In the book of Revelation, we see that bride again. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see the picture of marriage with the man and the woman depicting Christ in the church. And the husband is is called to love the wife the way Christ loved the church, laying himself down for her, that he might present her to himself as a radiant bride, holy, set apart for him. In Revelation 21, the bride is indeed radiant. No defilement remains you know yourself i know myself well enough to know that if it were up to us to fix it our defilement would remain amen but christ has removed it as far as the east is from the west he has redeemed us to make us his bride jesus is the perfect judge he's without any impurity he's perfectly righteous and just in his love of neighbor He knows our hearts, defending against the accuser, and yet fully aware of our actual guilt. He knows when we're unfaithful. Christ, aware of our sin, knows the true nature of sin, that it is against God. He does not overlook our impurity, injustice, or unfaithfulness. Rather, He bears that sin in Himself. The one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God and He bears our sin outside the camp. He pays the sin debt. He removes the bitter curse from us. Therefore, we must understand that the one who accuses the bride of anything holds no weight before the one who actually knows her guilt or innocence. 
and has declared his bride to be pure, radiant, holy, and undefiled. Whatever the enemy might accuse us of has already been addressed by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I want to say that again because we need to get an amen in our heart over this. Whatever the enemy might accuse us of has already been addressed by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on our behalf. When the devil accuses you, whether you are innocent or guilty matters not because Christ has paid your debt and declared you clean. For all who will trust in Christ Jesus alone as our only hope and master, our sin has been removed. Our penalty has been fully paid. We've been declared not guilty because God Himself has redeemed us to be His own bride. Now it's time for us, as God's people in whom He dwells, to live like who we are in Christ. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Understand our moral behaviors are not our identity, but they are rooted in our identity. They're the product, the overflow, not the cause. Conduct that reflects the character of God does not make us belong to God. You don't get to be His by acting a certain way. But belonging to God must inevitably lead us to reflect Him with our conduct. The presence of God requires the absence of sin. Christ has made us His. Let us now live as those who've been set apart to Him. Father, as we close the service today, we cannot possibly thank You with words for the love You have demonstrated to us in sending Your Son while we were in fact unclean to remove our uncleanness, to pay our debt, and to declare us not guilty because He has paid it all. Father, we ask now that as those who have placed our faith in You, that You would refine us, that You would burn away all that is less than holy, that You would consume in any way necessary, Lord, by whatever we must go through to become like Jesus, that you would consume our sin. Father, thank you for Jesus paying the price. Now help us to walk worthy of that calling. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.